Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. In completing our discussions of the theoretical approaches to understanding war today, I'm going to share with you some of the research that originated at the United States Institute of Peace, which was a little agency, kind of the parallel to the National Institute of Health, uh, which was seriously looking at the question of uh, where wars come from, what do we know really empirically, as opposed to uh, broader general uh, theories. Um, that has uh, been research that's been expanded down here at the uh, center in a series of war and peace seminars to develop a, a newer, more uh, detailed theoretical approach to trying to uh, perform the task that uh, Tony described for you very effectively yesterday, and that is you need to understand and predict and presumably, if you know what the major factors are, you then are in a position to influence through, through policy changes. So that's what we'll be doing. Um, the um, Louis Pasteur statement here is to remind you that uh, what we want are things that work in the real world. Uh, we want things that empirically correlate, not simply feel-good theories that uh, may be very good to uh, get you tenure at the University of Chicago. Uh, but we're really trying to find things that, uh, in fact, uh, help us in the real world. Now, Tony uh, properly and superbly gave you an overview of the two traditional theories of neorealism or structural realism and idealism, and the two newer theories uh, that were uh, responding to that. And let me start by saying, um, not surprisingly, virtually every theory, or it would have no adherence at all, uh, has something in it that uh, we can learn from. And certainly structural realism uh, had uh, a couple of very important points for us uh, that are correct. One is that there is no international sheriff out there. Uh, we don't have world government. And so, yes, there is a security dilemma uh, that states will face, or uh, as the realists typically talk about it, uh, using the old Greek meaning of the term, it is uh, the international system is a, sitting, uh, a setting of anarchy. Uh, that is an absence of government. Um, and they're correct about that. That's the starting point for trying to understand the problem. They're also correct that power is important. Uh, certainly, um, we would not uh, dismiss power uh, or the notion of trying to achieve balances of power. They can be a very useful thing. Idealism also had some, I think, very appropriate uh, uh, concepts. Uh, the idea of collective security, as Tony went through it with you yesterday, if we do it right, makes sense. Uh, ask yourself about NATO, for example. Uh, NATO was a very effective collective security arrangement at a, a lesser than global level. And one of the major differences between NATO and uh, the United Nations we'll be talking about when Tony gets to looking at uh, the United Nations uh, later. Um, also, I think the idealists were right in the sense of their sense of optimism. 
Uh, these are really the children of the Enlightenment. I happen to also be a believer in the Enlightenment. Uh, we can make things better. Uh, in the aggregate, life has been getting better for people in a whole variety of ways, and there is no reason that we cannot deal with problems of war, or at least make it a lot better uh, than it's been in the past, and human rights and a whole variety of other issues. Uh, we understand economic uh, development and economic improvements through time. We've certainly seen that. Uh, levels of global poverty uh, are getting better control than they were in the past. And uh, so, yes, I think it's appropriate to be a, a child of the Enlightenment. Um, and that was a good thing the idealist uh, did. Institutionalism is really a scream against uh, structural realism. Um, because it's really saying a group of international lawyers and others, although interestingly here coming out of IR theory, hey, international law actually does make a difference, uh, at least in some settings. Institutions can work. They can be good. Um, and they're right. Uh, that's a very good point uh, to come out of institutionalism. I think most of us in international law are a little amused at this because uh, I was studying this back with... Uh, uh, Harold Laswell and Myers McDougall at Yale back in the 1960s. Uh, so it hardly strikes us as a new observation uh, on it. Constructivism is also a scream against uh, structural realism, which had dominated the field so much, because it's saying, wait a minute, this anarchy that you started with is not really totally a fixed system. Uh, things change. Not only that, subjectivities matter. We talked about the difference between uh, uh, the French uh, force to frap nuclear and uh, the North Korean uh, potential nuclear setting. Uh, so there's so much in terms of what the constructivists are doing in looking at ideas and subjectivities and social process, a complex, uh, booming, ongoing set of interactions that are quite complex. They're right. Uh, that's, that's something that's uh, very useful. Having said that, um, does the emperor really have many clothes when it comes really to the question of, of the hard task that um, Tony posed for theory? That is understanding and predicting and uh, then uh, letting you understand what are the variables so that you might be able to change some of those variables and affect policy. And here I think the problem is that all of the conventional theories are at much too high a level of abstraction uh, to basically be very helpful in enabling us to perform those tasks very effectively. Let me just, just pick out from structural realism what for me is uh, uh, one of the one of the core problems. What's the the starting insight of structural realism in explaining war? Well, anarchy of the international system. That is, there's there's no sheriff uh, out there. Okay, is that really telling us when wars are going to break out? Because sometimes we have wars and sometimes we don't. But anarchy is always there, right? So is it really giving us uh, much specificity in telling us what's happening? Let me give you an analogy here. Would you be very satisfied if uh, 
there was a, a plane crash and you asked, mm -hmm. uh, well, why did, the, why did the plane crash? And the response to you was the law of gravity. <laughs> well, of course, that's correct. Um, the law of gravity is always out there. Uh, it's the overarching, overarching condition um, that uh, explains it, of course, but it's not very useful in explaining why some airplanes fly nicely and others crash. And I think that analogy is very good in dealing with uh, a fundamental problem of structural realism and failing to get us to the level of specificity. Um, idealism, again, I'm going to hold my comments here on collective security and how we make it stronger. But collective security has a place. Collective security can work if you do it right. It's just very, very difficult to do it right uh, fully at the international, at the global level. And as we get into the discussion with Tony, I will throw in some questions and we'll sort of look at that. Another one of the things that the idealists had focused on that I, as an international lawyer, like very much, but don't think gives us the answers on it. Uh, Tony didn't go into this, but he, he very much uh, with me on where we go on this. And that is uh, the notion that um, uh, third-party dispute settlement is also a good way to kind of avoid war. Um, you'll notice that the uh, housing for the International Court of Justice is called the Peace Palace. Why was it called the Peace Palace? It was called the Peace Palace because after World War I, Andrew Carnegie thought the answer to you know, how you prevented all of this is basically to, uh, uh, to have third-party dispute settlement. The problem I have with that is it's not a very good analogy to the nature of war. Uh, third-party dispute settlement is very good. I happen to support the court. I've argued before the court uh, this is a good thing. Uh, lawyers will certainly uh, be supportive of that. But the problem is uh, it's a bad analogy for the core of, of uh, uh, origins of war. Um, most wars are settings like the gunman writ large that comes up to you in the street with his 357 Magnum, points it at your head, and says, uh, your life or your wallet. Well, you don't at that point say, I think we should go to court and decide how much of my life or how much of your wallet you're entitled to <laughs> at this point. Um, and if you look carefully at the origins of war, you'll find that they are much closer uh, to the analogy uh, of the uh, criminal in the street um, and trying to basically fundamentally control unauthorized coercion uh, than they are the problem of really the, uh, a dispute about uh, a boundary or a dispute about uh, uh, sales of grain. Uh, between two, two states. Uh, institutionalism, again, the problem is there's just no theory here at all. Uh, it's, it's objecting to one of the features of neorealism, and they're correct. Constructivism, objecting to a few more features of neorealism, and they're correct. But there's no theory uh, in any of them. In fact, the constructivists even say we're not generating a theory uh, of international relations. Okay, so where do we go from here? Um, if we begin to go back and start, instead of these sort of 
20th century theories about uh, where, where war comes from. And we begin to look at throughout history at some of the theoretical approaches. Uh, we go back to Abbey St. Pierre's project for perpetual peace. And the idea was here you, you have organization of some kind. You get the, uh, the major uh, states organized together. Um, and sort of this is sort of a precursor, in a sense, to the League of Nations or the United Nations. But um, many say today this was the real precursor to the European Union, more than uh, anything else on it. Um, the French uh, philosopher Rousseau, the American uh, pamphleteer Thomas Paine, and Immanuel Kant, the great German philosopher, all argued that Republican governments today, we would say democratic governments, uh, would be more peaceful uh, than monarchies. They didn't have any empirical data about that, but they intuited this. Uh, it's going to turn out to be correct. Uh, Richard Cobden and John Stuart Mill urged that increasing trade will reduce war. Kind of an interesting concept. A good economist uh, seemed reasonable. Uh, they also intuitively uh, were correct. Uh, we now have the empirical data uh, in relation to that. They didn't have it at the time. And then after the American Civil War, Ivan Bloch in 1898, along with lots of other scholars, have argued that the modern technology of killing made war so horrible that we wouldn't have wars anymore. Um, well, that didn't prove to be the case, at least for Civil War uh, technology in, in, in war. Um, and uh, we certainly saw the, uh, what had happened in, in World War II. We had this presentation as our first presentation of the potential of future war. Uh, but it is possible that there's something here. And that is the um, uh, nuclear weapons after that first use um, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki have never been used in the world again. And it's conceivable that the, uh, the level of, um, of damage potentially from nuclear weapons is really so high uh, that it certainly, whether we can say it's going to solve the problem for permanently, we can't say. But maybe what we can say is that it probably has been a very substantial deterrent element that may have slowed down the process and may have been one of the factors uh, in reducing, at least, uh, we did not have World War III, at least, uh, to this point. Now, one of the most interesting was written in 1914. His timing was not very good. This was on the eve of World War I by Norman Angel. And he said, war wouldn't occur since it's stupid. Basically, uh, doesn't benefit the people of various countries. He was talking about England or Germany. And so why would you go to war? Uh, because, you know, it's really not going to change who owns what and things of this sort. Well, you know, this, this works pretty well for democratic systems, but uh, doesn't get at all the idea that if Saddam Hussein takes over Kuwait, uh, he's able to own all those oil wells and put them to any use that he wants to put in building uh, palaces or weapons of mass destruction. By the way, Angel's book, was the most widely um, uh, disseminated book about preventing war of anything ever in history, including any of the modern theoretical uh, approaches. Uh, it was translated into umpteen languages. Uh, there were uh, true believers running all over the, all over the world. 
uh, the president of Stanford University was all over the United States at the time. In England, it happened to be the guy that was the equivalent of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, that was a Norman Angel fan uh, right before World War I, uh, basically uh, saying, oh no, war won't occur because this is really stupid. Uh, and people, you know, nobody will gain. By the way, the underlying message was true in that particular case. World War I uh, just set back the world economy uh, extraordinarily, and uh, the damage and danger done, done from nobody gained uh, from that war in the slightest. Okay, but more traditionally, people sort of make lists of, well, where do wars come from? They come from these you know, variety of different things. Specific disputes among nations, ideological disputes, ethnic and religious differences, proliferation of weapons and arms races, social economic injustice, imbalance of power, competition for power, structural realists like that, incidents, accidents, and miscalculations. Now, the interesting thing is nothing on that list powerfully correlates with war. Uh, this is not to suggest that these things don't enter into a broader equation of war in a number of settings. The one we would tend to be looking at today is ethnic and religion, religious differences after al-Qaeda and ISIL, et cetera. But in reality, when you run these things uh, historically through time, you don't get uh, positive, strong correlations with uh, automatically these things uh, at some point produce, produce war. Um, now, one point I would like to emphasize here that we do know the answer empirically. Uh, we looked at this very carefully. Um, counter to popular mythology, wars are not accidents. We do not know of a single major war with a thousand or more casualties that resulted uh, from an accident. Lots of miscalculations. Uh, lots of uh, belief systems of the initiators that they were going to win in a short period of time. Uh, typically seven, eight, ten days uh, when they uh, engage in many of these activities. The longest we can find in the theoretical amount of time that they believed it was going to take to win their war was uh, the Germans in World War I, in which the Schlieffen Plan uh, believed they would win the war in 20 days. Um, well, it didn't work out quite that way. Terrible miscalculation. But the point is, every one of these uh, in major wars is initiated deliberately uh, in the use of force uh, to achieve a particular uh, objective. Well, let's flip it around. If we can't find the answers in looking at sort of that list of causes, how about let's shift over to the list of things on the war avoidance. And again, I don't mean to dismiss these things. They're all important. Everything here is useful, can go into a broader equation, things we'd like to deal with. But there is nothing on that list that we have been able so far to find any enormously powerful uh, empirical correlation uh, with, with war. Uh, I happen to think good collective security is very important. Um, good balance of power can do useful things. Diplomacy is good. I very much believe that. Uh, former State Department background um, and lots of other uh, points here. But um, nothing 
here powerfully correlating with war if we're really trying to understand uh, specifically a little more about origins of war. Well, what does correlate? The um, single most powerful correlation that we've been able to find is something called the democratic peace. Democracies rarely, if ever, wage major war against other democracies. And uh, this one just holds up very, very powerfully. Uh, for years, the neo-realist, uh, uh, structural realists fought against this, but they lost. Uh, the empirical data was just too strong. Here is Russett's book. Russett, by the way, um, uh, is a pretty good international relations scholar. He happens to, uh, some years ago, have headed the Yale International Relations uh, Department. Striking fact about the world comes to bear on any discussion of the future of international relations. In the modern international system, democracies have almost never fought each other. If we look, this, look at this in chart form, though this is a little uh, misleading because these are really not numbers of wars, these are dyads, which are years between countries who are either fighting wars or not fighting wars uh, on it. And, uh, but it gives you a pretty good sense of what's going on here. If you look at this period <clears throat> from 1816 to 1991, which is simply a, a period used because that's when the, for the most part where we had the data, uh, it was done by scholars uh, uh, some years ago here at the United States. You'll notice that they've, uh, Professor Rummel, who was at Yale and then was uh, nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize for this work, never got it, uh, was that it was zero between two democracies. Non-democracies, however, were fighting each other and democracies um, pretty much at an equal opportunity basis. Uh, they uh, were fighting everybody at a fairly, fairly high level. Now, the other thing you need to know about this is as you try to deal with a question of war empirically, um, it's a little bit like dealing with a question of health empirically. Uh, we don't have one sort of aggregate health uh, element. We try to break it down. But we're not very good yet at breaking down war into the, the subheadings. But we have kind of three. One is civil wars. One is minor coercion. And one is major war. And the fairly arbitrary dividing line we use for that is a 1,000 total casualties. You need something to at least separate major wars from the zillions of little things that are occurring with minor minor coercion, uh, et cetera, that's, that's taking place. So this is using that over 1,000 combat deaths and shows you the democratic peace uh, is very strong. What's the rest of the story, though? Because democracies are still fighting lots of wars with non-democracies. What are the mechanisms within democracies that account for the democratic peace? Democracies aren't fighting other democracies, but they're still involved in a large number of wars. Why? Are democracies as aggressive in the use of major or minor force as non-democracies? How can democracies avoid wars with non-democracies? Um, the um, um, questions, I think, are uh, things that we um, don't fully know the answers to. Uh, but let's just begin to look at a few of these. 
If you look at the causes of the democratic peace, various scholars will focus on different issues such as shared beliefs or checks and balances and rule of law. I think the answer is a little easier to understand, frankly, on this one. It is that you really have in political theory a, um, a, a broad spectrum. You've got totalitarianism over here, and that's a much more meaningful concept than left or right. Uh, there was not that great a difference between talking about Marxism and talking about National Socialism under uh, Adolf Hitler. Uh, over here on the other side, uh, we get uh, full liberal democracy. You then go through a variety of sort of electoral democracy, and then you go through authoritarian systems, and it's a broad spectrum, and they have many, many different uh, attributes. Um, but uh, democracies basically kind of have all of these factors going for them in, a, in the democratic peace. They have checks and balances. They have a rule of law, which is another form of kind of checks and balances. The leaders are typically not chosen by violence, unlike Saddam Hussein, who takes power by killing uh, the opponents of the regime. He's originally the, their enforcer, and then he uh, decides to kill the regime itself and take over. He's a specialist in violence, not in trying to appeal to a population. High levels of interaction between democracies. Shared belief systems. No wonder that we really are not too worried about the French force de frappe uh, or the, uh, the fact that the Brits have you know, quite an effective uh, uh, nuclear uh, deterrent. Uh, but there's another one also that comes from um, economics. It won the Nobel Prize in economics some years ago that I think needs to be on the list that usually is, is not, and that is government failure theory. And, uh, this is simply, there is less ability for leaders in a democracy to externalize cost on the population um, on it, and um, uh, they are able to, uh, not as much, be able to sort of internalize the benefits themselves and externalize cost. Whereas Saddam Hussein, again, uh, whatever he wants to do in a war or anything else, uh, the benefits go to his bottom line and the costs are imposed on the, uh, his uh, Shia opponents that are drafted and uh, put on the front lines to die in the wars in order to get more oil for him to build more palaces, uh, et cetera. So there's a whole variety of fundamental differences between them. Now, one of the interesting elements in the international relations literature where I believe they get it wrong. They just get their facts wrong. And I think it's primarily, Tony, because most of them, unlike you, are not international lawyers. And so um, I think they don't know that much about international law, and so they can't add it up very, very well. But the traditional view that's still being caught, taught in all of our IR departments is that democracies are no less aggressive in initiating wars uh, than non-democracies. Uh, this is taken as kind of an article of faith. Well, let me uh, uh, just give you a great story about the importance of getting your facts right, because on this, I think uh, uh, the, we have a real problem here in the IR theoreticians not getting it right. The, the story is a wonderful one of um, 
um, the uh, uh, camping trip uh, between Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Uh, they were in their tent under the stars one night. And in the middle of the night, uh, Holmes nudges Watson. He says, Watson, Watson, look up at all those stars up there. What do you deduce? A very sleepy Watson looks up and says, well, there, there are millions, maybe billions of stars up there. Maybe there's some other planets. Maybe there's some life up there somewhere. Maybe even something like us. And Holmes very disdainfully looks at him and says, Watson, you idiot, someone stole our tent. <laughs> well, I kind of feel that way about the IR theorist here and saying, you know, they, they've got the doubt on the democratic peace, but then they think, oh, no, they're, they're no, no less aggressive. Well, what do we know about that? Since the adoption of the UN Charter, which is, has made it very clear <clears throat> that you cannot use force in violation um, of Article 2.4, that is, is a modality of major change in the international system. 86% of the major wars were initiated by non-democracies. That is, uh, 25 major wars with non-democratic aggressors, one with a uh, democratic aggressor, I think clearly illegal, um, and three that we can argue about. Uh, on it. Now, let's look at what they are. Clear aggression, Britain and France in the 1956 Suez War. Um, basically, this is a setting in which they were trying to control Nasser in his nationalization of the Suez Canal. But the Suez Canal was in the Egyptian territory, and he had not used force to do it. He just simply declared uh, that the canal was now Egyptian. And using force in a non-force setting such as that was, in fact, in violation of the Charter. The United States called Britain and France out. Now, you'll notice I have left out Israel in this because the Israeli component of this was responding to Fedayeen raids uh, that were attacking Israel, uh, and I score that uh, somewhat differently. Actually, if you leave them out, this is uh, the total casualties uh, in the 56 Suez War, uh, leaving out the Israeli component, were actually below 1,000 casualties. So it's really not a counterexample. Arguable aggression. Now we'll really have fun with the first one here because we've got both an Indian and a Pakistani uh, in the class. But I'll just give you uh, my perspective uh, in relation to this. Um, as you know, Pakistan used to have a West, West Pakistan and an East Pakistan. East Pakistan is today Bangladesh. And uh, what happened is um, uh, there was an election, um, and um, uh, the uh, uh, group um, uh, in West Pakistan that wanted to take power was not doing well in that election, lost in, in East Pakistan and decided the best way to handle it was uh, through the use of force and uh, some very, very bad uh, killing uh, that began to take place. Uh, massive numbers of refugees poured into India at that point. Uh, India stood it for a while and then basically uh, uh, went in in uh, uh, what could be scored as a humanitarian intervention. Uh, 
Um, when I presented this up at the Naval War College some years ago, uh, the president of the War College was there, and she stood up and said, uh, uh, you're wrong about this arguable aggression on India and the Bangladesh War. I was the ambassador of the United States to India, and I can tell you this was humanitarian intervention on the part of India and not illegal. I happen to agree with her, but this is one as to legitimacy of humanitarian intervention. I happen to support it. I'm one of the groups of scholars that do. Uh, the British government does. The United States government does not. So I'll put it in the arguable. We should. That's why I think mistaken that we do not. But Turkey in the 74 Cypriot War. This was a setting in which you had a treaty of guarantee uh, between um, uh, the, or actually with the Brits guaranteeing, uh, both the Greek and Turkish parts of uh, Cyprus. Um, a non-democratic government in Greece began to push for um, a, uh, a unification of, of Cyprus, all of Cyprus, with Greece. Um, the Brits failed to do anything under the uh, support uh, for the Treaty of Guarantee, and the Turks came in. So you can argue this either way, too. You can argue they were really kind of enforcing a Treaty of Guarantee <coughs> at that point. Now, I, I happen to believe that they're uh, they violated the laws of war pretty uh, dramatically uh, in that setting, humanitarian violations. But you can argue this either way. U.S. United Kingdom in the 2003 Iraq War. Uh, this, I think, can be argued both ways as well. Indeed, my colleague Robert F. Turner and I, uh, I think the last time we held one of these, we debated that for the class. But, uh, and I usually, we, the two of us usually debate that in the international law class. But um, it's, it's uh, clearly not a, uh, any kind of clear uh, case uh, one way or the other. Now, this is kind of interesting. If you look at another way of how do we get into the, how do democracies get into the wars? And this is really sort of the path to war in those 20 major wars. I won't go through these in detail unless anyone is interested in what you put in various things. But the one I'm scoring is humanitarian intervention, and this one happens to be uh, India going into, uh, uh, Pac into uh, East Pakistan in that setting. And I, I do come down on that side. The severe threat of attack is uh, Israel in the Six-Day War. Uh, we can look at a number of others as well. Now, uh, here's another way of looking at it. Uh, yes, it's sort of 86% of who is initiating the major wars. And maybe it's a little better than that, because, uh, again, you could throw out that, that uh, British-French action, if you want, as under the 1,000. But uh, I think a better indication here is what level of risk are democracies taking in their initiation versus levels of risk taken by non-democracies in their initiation. And a good uh, indicator of that would be total casualties. So non-democratic initiated wars in that period have produced 94% of the total casualties. Democratic initiated and arguably, which again, no necessarily, this includes the Gulf, the recent Iraq war, uh, I've scored at about 5.7%. But there's something very interesting about this data because if you exclude the recent Iraq war, uh, the remaining democratic initiated wars casualties 
dropped down to less than 1% of the total casualties. There's, what does this suggest? Well, it's fair to say sometimes democracies may be initiating things that, are, that end up with a lot of casualties. Uh, that, that happened here. But it's also suggesting there's something pretty atypical. There's something different about what happened in that Iraq war uh, as to how that happened uh, in a democracy. And so think about that a little bit. We're going to come back to that, uh, that question. There's yet another way of trying to analyze all of this. Uh, one of the top international law professors in the world ever, Professor McDougall, wrote the best book probably on sort of what is aggression uh, that anyone's ever written. And his bottom line that he used to teach in class was what we're really looking at is who is initiating the use of force for value extension as opposed to value conservation? If you look by that standard, the answer is zero for democracies. Uh, and yet, here is Saddam Hussein basically trying to annex another country uh, with, with Kuwait. Uh, and uh, we, can, we can just see you know, North Korea attacking South Korea. Uh, we can just see so many examples of deliberate efforts at value extension. But um, the Iraq war was not that, nor were any of the others uh, that we looked at, efforts at deliberate value extension by democracies. Uh, they were influenced by something else, uh, some concerns, defense, et cetera. Maybe it fits a little bit within that anarchy of the international system and trying to get greater power, whatever, or deal with problems. All we've seen so far is one element. We've seen one powerful correlation, and that is the democratic peace. But surely there's, there's a lot more. Now, look at that democratic peace for a moment. That's really talking about form of government. That's all. Form of government, we said. Something's going on in form of government that's pretty important here. Okay, let's go back and say, well, wait a minute. Probably the realist had something in mind uh, that makes a lot of sense when we talk about the nature of the international system. So that's really what we talk about role of deterrence. Deterrence is a slippery term. We tend to sort of look at it and say, we just, you know, we're, we're thinking about military forces or something of that sort. But no, it's much more complicated. What we're really talking about here in my use of the term is the totality of everything external from the international system coming in and influencing a decision maker in a particular uh, country as to whether they're going to you go to war or not. Um, the totality of positive and negative actions, including potential military responses, security arrangements, economic relations, including trade, diplomatic relations, international organizations, international law alliances, collective security or lack thereof, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, how do we know that this plays a role and is important? One thing we do have, we don't have the level of empirical data that we do have for the democratic peace. But one thing we do have is a great historical study by one of the best historians in the country, uh, Professor Kagan at Yale, who wrote the great piece on the Pel Peloponnesian War, that I believe won the award from the American historians as the best 
piece of history ever written uh, by an American uh, scholar. And he ran a little seminar at Yale on uh, where wars come from. And basically, if you go through it, you'll see that he's arguing in every single case that the war was avoidable had they simply deterred and there was no effective deterrence and the wars occurred because of an absence of deterrence uh, in those particular cases. Now, there's so many inputs in putting together a sophisticated deterrence package. We've done that, but it's got lots of inputs. I don't have time to go into all those here. But I'm going to give you a few of the inputs that we know correlate. One is the effect of trade, uh, which is one of those external things. Uh, so it's part of this deterrence. We do know that high levels of trade between two nations correlate with a substantially lower rate of war. This is about as powerful as the democratic peace itself. Um, it, it gives some considerable hope for uh, that we will avoid uh, uh, the Thucydides trap in one of our good uh, realists uh, who's been writing uh, with a recent book that uh, was on the New York Times bestseller list about how as you get two major powers and they're moving up, you get a challenge, and, and that's the Thucydides trap that, that frequently leads to war. Interestingly, if you look at his book, what you'll find is it sometimes leads to war, sometimes does not lead to war, just like anarchy itself. And so what has he really added? Uh, well, yes, it probably maybe is a little higher risk for this, you know, this competition between major powers. But we do know that uh, one of the things that empirically correlates that reduces the risk of war considerably is high levels of bilateral trade. Now, there's another thing we know empirically relates to all of this as well. And this comes from behavioral economics. And it is a, um, an understanding of how we think, how human beings think across cultures, um, across nationalities, et cetera. So I'm going to play an experiment with this class. Uh, you uh, today, uh, it's very lucky that you came to class. You get $900 for sure. You're going to have to choose here. Or we're going to give you a 90% chance to get $1,000. Now, how many want to have the $900 for sure? Okay, how many are going to take the 90% chance to get 1000 Not too many. So most of the class doing the $900 for sure. Okay, you got to choose again. I'm going to have to speak, you know, speak I guess, to the those who... Uh, fund the program without making sure we you know, get you these funds, but whatever. Okay. Now, though, it's, it, this doesn't look too good on this side. You're going to have to choose. Uh, either you're going to lose $900 for sure, or you have a 90% chance to lose 1000 How many want to lose the $900 for sure? Raise your hands. Not too many. How many are going to take the 90% chance to lose 1000 very, very high percentage of the class. What's going on here? Kind of looks like sort of the same thing. What's, what's happening? Well, let's give you some more uh, chances to choose. In addition to whatever you own, you have been given $1,000. Wow, it's good to come to this program. <laughs> you are now asked to choose, in addition to that 1000 you have, one of these options. 
you have a 50% chance to win 1,000, or you can get 500 for sure. So remember, you're going to keep that 1,000, but you get a 50% chance to win 1,000, or 500 for sure. How many want to take the 50% chance to win 1,000? A few. How many want to get the 500 for sure? More. Okay, we'll go on. In addition to whatever you own, you've been given 2,000. Things get better and better here. <laughs> However, you're now asked to choose one of the options. 50% chance to lose 1,000 or lose 500 for sure. How many want to take the 50% chance to lose 1,000? How many want to lose 500 for sure? Okay, interesting uh, on it. Now, what, what you have really experienced is something that won the Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, one of the, those that won it was Daniel Kahneman. And the great book, and I've given you a little bit of a handout, if you're not familiar with it, you ought to have a look at it, because this is one of those great, great insights that we have uh, that are very important, a book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Empirically, we know that individuals take higher risk to avoid loss than to achieve gain. People become risk-seeking when all the options are bad. Humans are wired that way. State leaders and advisors are no exception. What does that mean for deterrence? It means that preventing Saddam Hussein from going into Kuwait and the level of deterrence required is a lot easier than trying to get him out of Kuwait once his expectations have shifted and he now believes Kuwait is part of what he owns. Um, so this becomes very, very critical in sophisticated analyses of uh, deterrence. Okay, here is uh, something that we have done. Um, interestingly, though, there are many, many systems for measuring democracy in the world. Uh, the best one is a system that's actually online called the Polity 4 series in international relations that scores every country in the world by every year of its existence by a plus 10 to minus 10 scale as to its level of democracy. So that one's pretty easy to get the correlations. Nobody really done anything in, in putting together a good, sophisticated sense of, uh, of levels of deterrence. Well, we did that. And um, we did that because I had initially approached this by saying the best thing we can do, we don't have the empirical data, is we will go war by war. We'll look sort of empirically at it. We'll have a plus 10, minus 10 scale. And I'll give a sort of a gestalt view of what I think the level of deterrence or absence of deterrence was before the war. That's Moore's impressionistic score here. We then developed a very sophisticated objective ahead of a time. Here are a whole series of things you look to. Uh, best evidence we have, including prospect theory, by the way, as to whether you're going to have deterrence or not. That's Stinger's methodology over there on the, on the right side. Now, some things emerge fairly interesting. One, the one that we kept saying over and over, we were about ready to have World War III, tends to have had an enormously high level of deterrence. That's the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, we had overwhelming strategic superiority over the Soviet Union at that time. 
In addition to that, they just had no real presence in the hemisphere at that time in relation to uh, U.S. presence uh, near Cuba. Uh, but as you'll see, as you look at most of these, most of the major wars, you can see that uh, the level of deterrence was very low, either very low or, um, depending on which of these you're looking at, uh, they're minus. <coughs> so this gives us a pretty good indication that we're, we're on to something. The international system is important, but it isn't primarily balance of power you need to look to. It's looking at specific individual wars and asking questions about what is the level of deterrence uh, before, before that, that war. Another way of asking it is we're asking questions about what are the totality of external incentives affecting decision elites, uh, making a decision to go, go for war or not. Now, there's one interesting thing here, though. When you compare the Gestalt approach uh, with the uh, objective approach, and that is um, you'll notice that the World War I German decision to invade Belgium and France, which is halfway down there, um, I have the deterrence framework. Uh, something had happened between the Austrian decision to attack Serbia and the, about a month later, German decision to attack on the Western Front. And I have it as deterrence going down. But the objective system has it as deterrence going up. Does anybody know what that event was that occurred? Okay, this was the Russian generals approaching the Tsar and saying, look, the last time they took part of Serbia, we can't let them do it again. We've got to mobilize our army. Under an objective system, Russian mobilization of the army at that point adds to deterrence. Why do I have it going down and why in the real world did it go down? It went down because the Germans always knew they had to fight on two fronts, and the Schlieffen plan was a uh, plan designed to deal with a two-front war. And the basic idea was you had to fight and win in the West before you took on the Russians. So when the Russians mobilized, it triggered the Schlieffen plan. And so you had to hit in the West very quickly. So actually, it looked like a good thing. So you need to be careful. Uh, and we're going to get back to that. Uh, all of this is very complex in the interrelations that, that you see. Okay. Uh, now, we've looked at uh, sort of the form of government, said, found something very important there that seemed to correlate with war. We've looked at everything coming in from the international system, deterrence, that seems to correlate with war, seems pretty important. But how about the individual, the leader themselves? Um, and one of the interesting things here is um, the um, um, structural realist, and particularly uh, uh, the offensive uh, realist uh, version of that uh, at the University of Chicago, basically just says not only does <coughs> the form of government not matter, but the individual leader doesn't matter. Well, do you really believe, do any of you really believe 
that it makes no difference whether the leader of a country deciding for war is Adolf Hitler or Mahatma Gandhi. I mean, it's just, it's, it's absurd on its face. And yet they are so stuck, Tony, in their structural realism that they are ignoring the most powerful correlation we have in relation to form of government, and they're ignoring virtually everything about differences in individual leaders. And I think part of that is it goes back to the early work that um, some of the founders of structural realism had done in which they were looking at what do we know about where wars come from and we're going to divide that into some people think it's the, located in the nature of man, some think it's located in the nature of government, some think it's located in the nature of the international system. And then, of course, they decided it was all on the third and put everything on structural realism on the third. But they got it wrong on the question. Because if it's just in the nature of man, of course your answer is going to be, well, you know, virtually the best thinkers really have all assumed that Man is, you know, has both ability, good and bad. It's, it's mixed. You're going to have good and bad for a whole variety of reasons. And so, yes, you want to, to be working to build, bring out that good. The children of the Enlightenment, we're going to get better. But you've got to control that bad over here, too. Um, but this was just something that uh, is completely um, ignored, apparently, uh, by them. And... Uh, even the idealists, by the way, don't talk about image one particularly. Um, nor do, just recently, the scholarship is beginning to pick up looking at maybe there, there are factors that make a difference, although I find that scholarship kind of pale. In reality, just to ask yourself a very simple question, here are some of the radical leaders who, as part of their radical belief system, believe in the use of force to achieve their objective. Adolf Hitler. Kim Il-sung, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Ho Chi Minh, Pol Pot, Slobodan Milosevic, Saddam Hussein. Clear, absolutely clear, radical ideology, radical leaders committed to use of force. Um, the end um, um, justifies the means. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is that's good for me that I can do is great. Now, we could, we could have a lot of quotes here, but I'm just going to pick out one. I'm going to pick on Mao on this. This is the book from Jung Chang and John Halliday about Mao. And this is his personal uh, uh, ethical ethics belief system. And think about this. Of course, there are people and objects in the world, but they are all there only for me. People like me only have a duty to ourselves. We have no duty to other people. Well, you wouldn't get elected you know, too well on that, on that slogan, probably. Uh, but, and pretty shocking sense of ethics. Uh, but, of course, it translates to your actions in relation to war, too. And here is Mao thinking that, you know, basically war is grand and good and interesting thing, and uh, uh, peace is not very good and kind of boring uh, on it. Okay, um, let's add to the individual, however, and put that into the equation that, you know, probably the individual leader makes a difference, too. Uh, let's, how about the key advisors around individual leaders? And I think the answer is there's lots of evidence that the key advisors around them make a big difference, too. 
Um, I think one example is are the, uh, the generals around uh, uh, Emperor Hirohito before the decision for Pearl Harbor and the decision to use uh, force actually to expand uh, the values um, uh, before the Pacific War. Um, the, um, I think the same thing was true uh, in relation to the advisors around George W. Bush at the time of the Iraq War. Uh, I think the evidence shows that George W. Bush had actually uh, resisted to some extent the Iraq War, uh, but a group of advisors who had all worked together, coordinated a policy together in an organization called Project for the New American Century, um, and most of them went into the George W. Bush administration at a very high level. Um, I believe that had 911 not occurred, the Iraq War would never have occurred. But when the 911 occurred, it removed all of the normal checks in the democratic system. And uh, all of those that had believed strongly that the real answer to making the Middle East secure for the future uh, was basically taking Saddam Hussein out of power and putting a democratic government uh, in place. Now, I know many of, many of these people. Many of them are my friends. These are good people that were trying to do good things. They were not trying to have an American value extension or, or steal Iraqi oil or something of that sort, as sometimes has been said. Um, they knew they were dealing with people with, who were very bad. They were slaughtering their own populations, et cetera. But this was, I believe, a very, very bad idea. Um, Everybody's going to have their own view about it. I believe this is one of the greatest strategic blunders in the history of American foreign policy and that we are still um, basically uh, uh, feeling the effects of, uh, of what happened uh, in, that, in that war. But if you're asking the question of where it came from, um, I think primarily it came from the fact that there was remarkable consensus on around principal advisors of George W. Bush that this was a good thing that needed to be done. And when they had the opportunity, they, uh, they moved forward to, uh, to do it. That's um, obviously a controversial uh, set of issues, though. Okay, what's some of the evidence uh, we have? Democracies rarely, if ever, go to war against democracies. Democracies have engaged in wars against non-democracies, major wars principally initiated by non-democracies. Absence of deterrence, major factor in the occurrence of war. Effective deterrence can prevent war. Individual leaders and their advisors are also important. Major wars occur primarily as a synergy between aggressive, predominantly non-democratic regimes, system-wide absence of deterrence, and individual leaders and their advisors that make the decision uh, to uh, use force for value extension. How do we test that? Well, we'd run it through major wars. We'd run it through non-war settings uh, where you didn't get a war, though you can't prove the negative on it. Effective system changes. And then, interestingly, you can correlate it with all the other uh, major things we're interested in in international relations. Um, if the correlations hold up with all these other things that we're interested in in international relations, it suggests that our theory is really not just one of war, but we're shooting broader game 
uh, for a broader general theory of international relations as to uh, how we more effectively predict and look at the elements that we might change that might make a difference uh, on it. We don't have time to go through all of these as I do in uh, War Peace Seminar on it, but let me just say, and anybody has any question about any of these, we'll come back to them. We will look at World War I briefly. Um, the evidence strongly suggests that every single one of these meets the paradigm uh, very strongly. <coughs> World War I, which is uh, at least in the United States, in IR de departments, again, those benighted IR departments uh, on it, I pick on a little too much, perhaps. But um, the, uh, primarily they are teaching that World War I was a war by accident. Um, by the way, that is no longer taught that way in Germany. It is no longer taught that way in Germany because uh, a younger scholar took the older scholars to task on this and won in a multi-year battle in Germany, indicating that World War I was aggression on the part of the German leaders. And I think that's exactly uh, the case as to what was going on in it. The real start of World War I, the thing that I think messes us up, is it did not start on the Western Front, it started on the Eastern Front. It started when the Austrians, and particularly uh, Count Leopold von Berchtold, the foreign minister, decided that the assassination of the Archduke was an opportunity to annex Serbia. And so the objective was to fully annex Serbia. They didn't even share that totally with their German allies. Uh, and this was nothing more than an opportunity. They knew that the, uh, the so-called black hand terrorist uh, was not working for the Serbian government, but that didn't make any difference. This was an opportunity. Germany gave a blank check to Austria. Germany invaded Belgium. And then, of course, you had Russian mobilization, and then Germany implements the Schlieffen Plan, declares war against France, Russia, Luxembourg, Belgium. Um, there is no NATO uh, <laughs> before World War I. Uh, nothing remotely like it, a complete absence of deterrence. Uh, lack of deterrence signals by the British. German perception of British indifference. The British would not even tell the French that they would support them in the event of a war. Uh, German perception of French and Russian military weakness. Now, you might say the one deterrence here was the French army, big, good French army. But the Germans looked at that and said, they've made a mistake. Uh, they don't have any really, really heavy artillery like we do. Uh, that's a terrible mistake, and we'll chew them up. U.S. military weakness, we're not in the equation. We're over here training with wooden rifles. We, there's no NATO. We're nowhere in the, in the equation, even. Alternative views are just simply wrong. War by accident, no. Tightening of alliance systems, there weren't any. Cult of the offensive, yes. Uh, everybody did believe at that point that uh, rapid war, et cetera, you gave the advantage to the attacker, et cetera, which, of course, is virtually always the case anyway. But, in fact, uh, the, this could have been stopped. In fact, the, uh, the, uh, um, the, uh, there were some discussions uh, right before the war, actually, in Germany about whether they sh should not proceed, but they went ahead. Now, another one just very simply, in the war against terror, it fits perfectly as well. Uh, talk about 
totalitarian ideology of the leaders here very clear. Absence of def effective deterrence in dealing with terrorism from virtually every country in the world until 9-1-1, and then all of a sudden uh, we have begun to pour on terrorism mostly. Although notice the initial ignoring of ISIL and ISIS as they really got up a full head of steam uh, in Syria and, and Iraq. Now, how about non-war settings? Well, um, I can't prove that there are no grapefruit orbiting Jupiter, but I have no reason to believe that there are. And uh, at least we can look at these settings and try to make some perceptions. NATO Warsaw Pact, NATO huge deterrence. This is utterly different than before World War I or World War II. I personally believe NATO may well have prevented World War III and was one of the most valuable things that we did in the West uh, in the 20th century. U.S., Canada, two democracies. Um, our good friends from Canada will be amused to know that um, that some years ago, at least, before we fought together in World War I, both sides did have uh, war plans in relation to a war with the other side. Uh, I was always uh, found fascinating the Canadian war plan, which I'm told was to take and hold Detroit. And I'm thinking, <laughs> <laughs> did that really give you a lot of leverage? <laughs> <laughs> but in any event, um, once we were all democracies fighting on the same side and everything, we are totally together in everything. I was very much uh, supportive of the uh, prime, your prime minister over the weekend when he was talking about, what do you mean uh, steel and aluminum uh, tariffs on Canada for national security reasons when, in fact, half of your airplanes are made with you know, our aluminum right now. So in any event, uh, we are obviously a part of NATO and work very uh, hard to find two countries that are working more closely together in, in defense. Uh, on it. France and Switzerland, same thing, by the way. Also a setting, you've got a nuclear power and you've got a, uh, another country. Shouldn't Switzerland be scared to death constantly? No, uh, they're not worried about the French to frap. Uh, and managed to stay out of things pretty well. And uh, same thing, uh, U.S., Canada. So pretty good answers. It, it seems to fit the system very well. It's the explanation of why, as Tony asked yesterday, we feel very differently about the French force to frap versus the North Korean uh, nuclear. Um, you can also see it if you, t if you look at changes in the things we said were important, form of government moving to or away from democracy, moving to or away from, uh, from levels of uh, deterrence. And I would add it also fits with the individual, moving to or away from leaders that are basically uh, uh, not committed to uh, good ideas about the international system and believe in the use of force for value extension. Soviet breakup, huge relaxation of tensions. We used to talk about spillover effect from arms control with the Soviet Union, in which we'd get minor political spillover effect. Look what happened when you changed the form of government back in 1990 in the former Soviet Union. 
they sold to us their enriched uranium at that point. Their top experts on nuclear carriers came to the United States. Um, things that were unbelievable. I, I, used to, I remember teaching a seminar with John Wheeler Bennett, the great British historian, and he told me never will the Soviet Union ever agree to the reunification of Germany. Well, one of the first things that happened was the reunification of the Germany and the disintegration of the Warsaw Pact. Uh, just a gigantic <coughs> change that took place from a simple shift in form of government. Coalition force deployment in the Gulf War, rapid increase in deterrence uh, when there had been virtually none for Saddam Hussein before. NATO response to 911 attack, rapid increase in deterrence in NATO countries against terrorism uh, when we virtually had zero in uh, the years uh, prior to that. Now let's look at these correlations with the rest of the uh, international system more quickly. Don't have time to go through this too closely for you, but this is one of the most important books, and if you're not familiar with it, it's called Death by Government by Professor Rummel, again, who was uh, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for this. Uh, we funded this at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and we did so because we knew about combatant casualties and how many combatant casualties there were in the 20th century, et cetera. We didn't know about how many people were being killed by governments uh, in and out of wars other than combatants. And so the guy that had the best data on this, uh, who again had been at Yale Political Science, basically put together these figures for us, and they're just staggering. Uh, nobody can be sure about any of these things. Some we've, we've heard about for years, like about 20 million for the Holocaust in World War II. Um, uh, most Americans, while they're willing to believe that Mao had been, had been engaged in a lot of killing, uh, had no idea that the Kuomintang before that had been engaged in a lot of killing too, which you see with about the 10 million figure there. Um, the uh, USSR, um, that's just a whole series of things from Lenin on, on through it. We could argue that that's high. I, I put Rummel when I was running this at USIP into a room with a then deputy ambassador of, the, uh, of uh, Russia at that point, not the Soviet Union anymore. And he said, well, you know, that's too high, but I think it's about 35 million, something like that. So the point is, these are awfully high figures. Uh, 169 million people being uh, killed and, uh, by governments, by bad governments. And by the way, notice that the ones killing in the millions are totalitarian regimes. The authoritarian regimes tend to be, bad ones tend to be kilo killers, killing in the tens of thousands uh, on it. Here's a sort of pie chart that sort of puts it all together. The green is totalitarian democide. That democide <clears throat> is genocide, including killing your political opponents. So uh, uh, that's, he believes, four times the total combatant casualties in all wars in the 20th century combined. In other words, bad governments are slaughtering their people at a rate uh, of the total of all casualties in all wars of the 20th century combined. It's a fundamentally new way to think about human rights and think about the nature of the world out there and totalitarianism. Um, and he has a small sliver for democracy democide. He doesn't believe we're zero. And, 
throws in a variety of things, uh, whether it's my Lai and uh, uh, in the Vietnam War or, or treatment of the American Indians, a uh, number of number of different things that he throws in uh, on it. I think that sometimes we look at these figures, 100 and uh, something million, and so our eyes kind of glaze over. These are our kids. These are people. These are wonderful human stories in every single one of them. And so I throw this in just to bring this back. These are the Jewish children in the streets in the Warsaw Ghetto who were slaughtered uh, in the Holocaust. Economic development. So when we ask that question, what do we now see about democratic institutions and rule of law correlating with human rights? It's off the chart. There's no ambiguity about it. Doesn't mean we're great and perfect in everything? No, hardly so. But off the chart difference. How about economic development? Well, surely that doesn't correlate. Well, it does correlate. One study after another. And uh, just to show you very simply here, in a pie chart dividing, or in a, in, a, in a chart dividing all the world into five different aggregate groups of levels of economic freedom, and look at growth rates. Uh, this was done by a guy who later on went on to be, I think, the chief economist for the, uh, um, the uh, Congress of the United States. And you can just see the, the highest level of economic freedom, pretty good growth rate, just goes straight down. You couldn't get a better correlation. And those like under Saddam Hussein, uh, it wasn't that we had just bombed the country into oblivion during the Iraq war. That didn't happen. There was huge looting because we didn't follow professional military advice and have adequate military forces there. That's true. But most of the damage had been done under the Saddam Hussein regime, in which you're really going downhill about 20, you know, about 2% a year in your GDP uh, over very, very bad uh, uh, sets of uh, control. Uh, this is the slide, of course, that uh, really just puts it in perspective. This is a night slide of South and North Korea with the uh, demilitarized zone. And nothing can give you a better sense of uh, levels of economic development, perhaps, than, than that. Uh, we would hope that um, the um, new North Korean leader would understand that maybe it would be good to try to you know, develop North Korea and forget about nuclear bombs, but this has not happened in the past. How about environmental protection? Well, surely that's just market failure and has nothing to do with governments. Uh, but I know, in addition to market failure, you get government failure, again, from that economics. And we know that the government failure damage to uh, the environment is actually even worse than the damage <coughs> to the environment that's taking place uh, through, uh, through markets generally. Um, so this was a group of Norwegians at the Norwegian Institute sort of following what some of us were doing at the U.S. Institute of Peace that very, in a very sort of mild form said, yes, there is this correlation. Uh, there are a number of other books now that really make it very, very powerfully, including some on the former Soviet Union that shows, shows what a complete environmental basket case uh, Soviet leadership was. 
How about famine? Well, surely that's just a matter of potato blights and uh, not enough rain, et cetera. Nope. Uh, it turns out that uh, famine directly correlated with form of government. Uh, it's a feature of colonialism. Uh, if you look at India, for example, you had all kinds of famines under colonialism, no famines ever under a, an independent uh, uh, Indian government. Um, the, um, uh, the famine in Ireland uh, was, was British responsibility, uh, the period of, of colonialism in, in Ireland, Ireland at that point. Uh, we happen to have benefit uh, from that with all kinds of wonderful Irish people in the, in the United States of America that fled Ireland, but uh, this was a, a good example of it. Now, this guy that wrote this, uh, Amitra Sen, won the Nobel Prize for this work. Uh, he's an economist at Harvard and lots of other places. How about terrorism? Well, once again, if these are our leaders, radical leaders, are prepared to use force in a major way for major wars, are they likely also to use force, minor coercion? One of the greatest supporters of terrorism in the world today is Iran. A lot of the others have fallen by the wayside. Cuba used to do it. North, North Korea used to do it big time. Uh, Syria used to be involved. Uh, Syria is still involved to some extent, but they've got their own problems now. Iraq uh, was formerly on the list big time. Libya used to be on the list, but today the, the real big one is, uh, is Iran. How about corruption? Well, there's corruption everywhere, but if you do a uh, scatter, scatter diagram here again using your index of economic freedom, we do the same thing with uh, democracy. Uh, versus a uh, Transparency International Corruption Index, you can see the, the skew, the clear skew going through it uh, in it. How about uh, refugee flows? Same thing. Uh, most refugee flows, like those from Cuba under Fidel Castro right after he took power or right after the Taliban took power in Afghanistan, fleeing and leaving and uh, um, this is a little bit misleading because that 23% were in, uh, this is right after the collapse of the Soviet Union and a whole bunch of little, little wars in Eastern Europe um, that were causing people to flee from the wars uh, primarily at that, that point. And they had not really fully established democratic systems. But it's, um, uh, you can just see it as you get the system better. Um, for example, look at Afghanistan. Taliban comes in, massive, oh, millions of people fleeing. Um, the U.S. and NATO goes in, reverses that, millions of people go back. Um, major war, um, probably pretty much stalemate of going in and out at this point in relation to what's happening. Okay, let's look at, is there, we've looked at some of these things from the individual and or from the form of government, from the external deterrence and from the nature of the individual. Can we now put together a newer theory that's a little more specific in getting at prediction, et cetera, as Tony had asked us? I call it uh, Dekinko theory, and this is one we've developed down here uh, at the law school using a variety of these inputs, a lot of it coming out of the U.S. Institute of Peace. Starting point here, remember, remind ourselves, however, 
one of the problems with everything we're seeing here, except constructivism on it, is it really is neglecting the complexity of this international social process. The social process internationally is highly complex. It is synergistic. It is things interacting with other things, not just adding up elements. Uh, and it is multivariable. And so it is highly likely that war is highly complex, multivariable, synergistic. Now, one thing to help us think about this um, is a little book, 1954. You asked me yesterday uh, when Ken Waltz published this. He did this for Col the Columbia Institute on War and Peace back in 54. I think it was his doctoral dissertation. And uh, it was a little book, uh, very uniquely asking the question, what have individuals thought throughout human history about where wars came from? And he put it into, well, some put it on the nature of the individual, some put it on the nature of the state, some on the nature of the international system. And then he himself went on to found structural realism, saying the only thing that's important is image three, the international system. Well, um, and I think he did that because the way he phrased the question, the individual, if it's always going to have good and bad, that's not going to be able to tell you anything. But if what you focus on is an individual leader, Saddam Hussein, for example, or Adolf Hitler, for example, you can make an assessment, is that good or bad in relation to their, their objectives in terms of use of force, et cetera. So I think that was that re badly phrasing of the issue was one of the things that led Ken Waltz away. And I think the same thing is true of MH2 in the form of in the state. It isn't just a matter of, you know, you have different democracies can do bad things, too. It is a matter of looking at a particular democratic institution as to what's happening uh, in a particular setting. But this really tells us then, and I'm going to throw in image one and a half, because I do personally think this was the explanation, much of the explanation of how the Iraq war happened. How does it fit the theory? Okay, let's start out. Uh, one, you shouldn't have it because this was a democracy, right? Well, something happened to remove the normal constraints. What was it? 911 attack on the United States. Remove the normal image two constraints on the United States of America. Uh, what was the next thing that happened? Well, let's look at international deterrence. No, there's kind of zero here. We've already destroyed Saddam Hussein's army on one occasion. Uh, nobody really cares that much about trying to stop the U.S. That's a cakewalk. We know that. We're going to be able to do it. So there's no real effective deterrence uh, in it. Then it all really comes down to image one and a decision to be made by the decisional elite for the war. And I think the real answer here um, is that a group of advisors around George W. Bush basically pushed him strongly uh, to do this, and ultimately uh, he embraced it and went in uh, to do it. Now, you can argue here, by the way, now that if we had time to debate all of this, uh, you can argue that if, had Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld listened to professional military advice and the State Department and one had proper, uh, effective, uh, uh, after-the-war occupation, and had moved effectively to a democratic government, 
and had not done a lot of the things that they did, such as uh, completely disbanding the Iraqi army without even consulting the Joint Chiefs over here about it. Um, had they done those things, maybe they would have really changed things in an interesting way as they thought. So I think a big part of the failure here is that of a Secretary of Defense who was not listening to professional military advice or the State Department or anybody else, as far as I can tell. Questions concerning usability? Given that complexity out there, you've got to have a theory that puts it all together and lets you be able to use it. So how do we do that? War is an interaction between not just the nature of man in the early wall <coughs> stuff, but rather individual heads of states and their advisors. And interacting with that, not just nature of government, a particular government, not just the nature of the international system, but rather the specific level of relevant incentives and deterrents that are coming in uh, to the system. What's the theory? I call it Dekinko theory. But that's not a word. That is a deliberate choice of a non-word to avoid confusion in a short title for a complex context. I, as Tony knows, I used to call this incentive theory. And people said, oh, you're just another one of these economists and uh, just looking at incentives. No, no, it's a little more complex. It's really where it comes from is there are three points of focus, decision, incentive, complexity. So what are we talking about? Wars are not accidents, point number one. Focus on the decision then for or against the use of force. Uh, this is made, it's a decision made by regime elites for or against the use of force. And it's not some vague formula such as states as agents in, in structural realism and constructivism or states as billiard balls colliding in realism. No. It is decision elites making the real stuff. And again, this is one of those uh, settings in which it is obvious when you come down and look at it. It's so obvious. It's so simple when you look at it. And there's a wonderful story, by the way, about uh, not overlooking the obvious that I think I'll share with you at this point. And it was the story of the, uh, uh, the two um, uh, neighbors. One had a pet rabbit. One had a German shepherd. I think you could see what may be coming. And the, to the horror of the German shepherd owner, one day the shepherd came back with the neighbor's pet rabbit dead, all covered with dirt. And she thought quickly, oh my God, this is going to ruin you know, our whole relationship. I like my neighbor so much. This is terrible. What do I do? So she thought quickly, gently took the rabbit out of the dog's mouth, washed it lovingly, used the blow dryer on it so that it really looked very beautiful, snuck across the fence and stuck it back in the hutch. And then she waited by the uh, um, the fence, see what would happen. And sure enough, a terrible cry went up from her neighbor. She ran to the fence and said, what happened? What happened? The neighbor said, my rabbit died. We buried it. Now it's back in the hutch. <laughs> so this is one of those, again, in relation to uh, 
you better get your facts right uh, on it, and we don't want to overlook the obvious on it. This, this is one of those that's, that's obvious. Um, okay, the um, second point, you want to consider all incentives affecting the decision. So it's point of decision, decision elites and the advisors. What are the totality of incentives coming into them? That's from image one, the decision elites themselves, from their key advisors, from image two, that is the constraints and opportunities from the form of government, and from image three, external inducements from the international community, international organizations, et cetera. Complexity. What we're saying there is it's the interactions from all of those things and between the relevant international actors and decision elites. It's not static. Okay, let's drill down on those. Let's look at each of those in turn. Image one, what do we know? We know a lot about image one now. Political belief system is going to be very critical. Is it a totalitarian belief system? A radical belief system that believes in use of force for extension of values, ISIL, for example, today. Personality type, we used to laugh at this, but we now know from good, good psychology research, there is something called a five-factor model, broadly accepted in psychology. And there is within that something called the dark triad, uh, which lead, has three very bad forms of uh, personality <coughs> that are not, not fully clinical. If it's fully clinical, by the way, they don't stay as heads of state very long, and usually so you don't get insane people starting wars, typically. Uh, I don't know of an example of that. So it's, it's subclinical we're looking at. So, and what are the, the dark triad? Machiavellianism, subclinical narcissism, and subclinical psychopathy. We don't have time to go into those now, but they're there. Personal experience, national, historical, and cultural perspectives, whether the setting is a gain or loss setting under prospect theory, ability to personally benefit and externalize cost. In short, we do want to look at the individual or those around them and ask very sophisticated questions. Same thing from the key advisors. The only thing I'd add here is they may be ganging up on, on the uh, top advisor. If there are eight of them that all have the same view and have been coordinating together and then push it, I think that's really what we had in relation to the Iraq war and the origin of the Iraq war. Constraints, opportunities from form of government, it's all those things we talked about earlier that make a difference. But here, um, we're looking at uh, where the decision elites have the ability to externalize costs, internalize benefits, uh, et cetera. But keep in mind, there may be traumatic events that could happen or events that could change things in the world that you lose the check of the democratic peace. I think 911 did precisely that to the United States. What that meant is the President of the United States was now free, free from checks, basically, largely free from checks, to do what the President of the United States wanted to do after 911. And uh, despite the fact that we know that Iraq was not part of 911, uh, we have that report from the uh, 911 Commission itself. Um, and I think it was reasonably understood at the time, a group of advisors saw an opportunity. Um, same thing about uh, Pearl Harbor. Would uh, Franklin Roosevelt ever 
have uh, thought about putting 70,000 American citizens into detention facilities um, in the absence of Pearl Harbor? I don't think so. So even democracies, uh, if certain things happen, can uh, lose some of the checks. How about the international community? Well, totality of all external incentives, positive, negative. Positive include high levels of bilateral trade, high levels of joint participation in international organizations. Negative would include deterrence through political, economic, and military sanctions, et cetera. Opportunity factors include territorial contiguity, et cetera, and some of the things that are actually fixed. Uh, we know there's a higher risk of war between two countries with territorial contiguity. Uh, not too surprising. It's both a motivating factor and an opportunity factor. Classic deterrence, by the way, as we think about image three, we normally think about it and we say capability, will, will signaling communication. I see this over and over again, particularly in military assessments of deterrence. It's, it's a pretty good uh, list. It's pretty correct. However, there's a problem. And that is, it's not just capability, will, and signaling and communication. It's also the accurate or inaccurate perception of that by the um, state you're trying or the leader you're trying to deter and what other, other things they may have in mind. So we know at least two settings in which it looks like your actions will deter in which they work to the opposite direction. One of those I mentioned is the Russian mobilization before World War I that triggers the Schlieffen plan. The second is we get very tired of the Japanese moving forward. We know the war plans. And so finally, we decide we've got to deter. And the United States puts on the economic sanctions. Now, with the economic sanctions, you'd think that would be an additional deterrent. Normally, it would be. But Japan happened to know in that case that it had the capability with its new um, torpedoes that were uh, uh, did not have to go to great depth to be effective. They could be effective in Pearl Harbor. Had the ability, I believe, to take out our fleet, most of our fleet, uh, in Pearl Harbor with a single strike. And they had one of the one of the world's best aircraft carrier attack uh, arms that had ever been put together in the history of naval warfare. Better than anything in the world at that point, no question about it. So. If you'd had otherwise American deterrence and you put it on, it would have added to deterrence. But in that setting, it simply uh, made the Japanese move toward uh, attack at Pearl Harbor. Another way of thinking about it, pretty simple, just something looking like this. Um, we are out of time, so uh, we'll take our break at this point. And uh, later, uh, if you'd like in any discussion of any of this, we'd be happy to. Uh, go into it with you. Thank you.